You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. On today's episode, we hit the middle of our IPO mini-series. If you haven't listened to the other two episodes, I would encourage you to start there. In the first episode, we got to know the IPO with an overview of the entire process. And in part two, we talked through IPO readiness assessments and prompted our listeners to start thinking through all of the important aspects they may need to consider before making the plunge and saying, I do, to the IPO. And today, we will cover the actual financial statement requirements as we take the next step in our process. We hope you enjoy the episode and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Adam Olson. And we're welcoming back Jana Gregory, a senior manager in Embark's Capital Markets Practice. She appeared on our kickoff episode of the IPO mini-series, and we are excited to have her back to talk through the financial statement requirements and common issues or the actual number crunching. So let's get to it. And before we get too far into the details, Adam, can you tell me why this is a challenging area? Yeah. So. It's challenging for a number of reasons. I think obviously the preparation of the financial statements that go into kind of the offering document um, is one of the biggest um, undertakings that management's going to have to, you know, sort through. And largely it's because there are historical financial statements that they likely were preparing um, on a U.S. GAAP private company basis in many cases um, aren't going to be sufficient. So there's a number of challenges you have to think through. Um, Some of those are inherent with like who ultimately is going to be the registrant. So um, there could be complexities involved in deciding who do we actually need to be creating financial statements for. So if you kind of think about situations where a company might be carving out a piece of the business to take public, so having to create carve out financial statements, um, or maybe it's a recently formed entity, you know, what was, you know, um, commiserated through a new co-formation or something along those lines where then you're having to figure out, do we have any predecessor entities that we need to have financial statements for? Um, and then there's also requirements just beyond the registrant itself, which we'll talk a bit about today. But, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about significant acquisitions you may have, significant, you know, equity method investments, things of that nature where... Um, that information being included in your registration statement is useful and meaningful to investors and there's specific requirements about having to prepare financials for them as well. So if I want to get started, what should my first step be? Yeah, so first step kind of hinted at this one is, you know, figure out who is the registrant, right? Mm -hmm. Who is actually going to be the entity that's going to be issuing the equity securities or the debt securities or combination of both, whatever the offering is for, um, you need to really identify who that who that uh, entity would be. So that sounds like it should be pretty straightforward, but I'm sure there are exceptions as there always are. So could you talk a little bit more about those? Yeah, for sure. So uh, definitely can be straightforward. Um, you know, if you're basically taking an existing legal entity um, and you're just taking that existing legal entity public, then obviously you've got your registrant there you don't really have to kind of figure out um, who is actually our registrant but like i mentioned um, kind of in the kickoff to the intro of this episode you know there can be other complexities that really can make this challenging and so a lot of times management has to you know in those situations look to kind of like the history of the formation of that entity really understand kind of the legal structures that are involved or if it's you know if you're maybe putting together a combination of entities or businesses or components or operating units or whatever you're kind of 
creating that you want to ultimately craft as the registrant, there can be more complexities involved there. So you definitely have to spend some time, make sure that you understand specifically who is that registrant and what should be included in their financial statements. Um, you know, working really closely with your advisors, obviously your auditors to make sure everyone's aligned on um, ultimately who you'll be presenting and what you'll be presenting. So Adam, you kind of mentioned a few examples of these exceptions where the registrant may not be as straightforward. So yep. Jana, would you be able to talk us through each of those examples, maybe starting with recently organized registrant? Yeah, absolutely. So the SEC considers an entity to be a recently organized entity if it has few or no historical operations and may have been, been formed to acquire one or more operating companies upon or near the consummation of its IPO. So an example of this type of company would be a SPAC, which I know we've talked about a lot here. I know you all have had several conversations about SPACs. Um, but again, that's a newly created company that raises cash in an IPO to fund the future acquisition of one or more private operating companies. And that's typically within a specified period of time. Um, so the financial statements of a recently organized registrant must be presented in an initial filing even if that company doesn't have historical operations. So in these cases, you'll have an audited seed money balance sheet of the newly formed registrant, um, typically as of the date of incorporation, to show that initial capitalization of the entity. And you know, statements of operations, comprehensive, in, um, comprehensive income, and cash flows can be omitted if there has not been activity other than that formation transaction. Uh, but then those, just keep in mind though, those financial statements must still comply with the form and content requirements of Regulation SX, which I think we'll be talking about quite a bit um, throughout the conversation today. Awesome, and I think the next example was predecessor entities. So what comes into play with those? Yes, if a registrant has not had um, substantive operations for all of the periods presented in an IPO, it becomes important to consider whether the registrant has a predecessor company or business. Um, and the SEC's definition of predecessor here is, is pretty broad. So for purposes of financial statements, designating an acquired business as a predecessor is generally not going to be required except in situations where a registrant succeeds to substantially all of the business of another entity and then the registrant's own operations before that succession appear to be insignificant relative to the business operations it assumed. So thinking, you know, what um, what is the makeup of that entity? Like, did the, did the registrant not really have significant operations prior to that acquisition? Um, and then a predecessor's historical uh, financial information is considered important and relevant in an investing decision. So this ultimately means that the registrant's financial statements and those of its predecessor together should typically cover all of the periods required by Reg SX. Also, the predecessor financial statements must be audited in accordance with PCAOB standards rather than AICPA standards. Yeah, maybe real quickly just to clarify on a couple of these points is, you know, she mentioned like with recently organized kind of entities, you got a SPAC and they truly don't have any prior um, operations. And so you really have that very basic balance sheet and that's all you put in there. But a lot of times when it comes to like an IPO, um, a company may set up a new entity, so it is technically recently organized entity that is the registrant, but it's actually derived from maybe a subcomponent of a larger entity or something of that nature. And so the SEC is going to expect you to look to that newly formed entity to determine, like, 
is this, did this entity really have existing operations prior to the formation of this entity? And they would expect you to present predecessor financial statements. Um, you know, so that's one thing to keep in mind, especially if that entity is already an operating entity, they've got, or, or intending to be an operating entity going forward from that recently formed um, formation of the entity itself. So on a similar note, are there any acceptable instances when you don't need to identify a predecessor entity? Yeah, so other than the registrant being a type of startup business, it would really be uncommon. Makes sense. And then the last one, um, let's talk about carve-out entities. This is something we've hit on in past episodes, so shameless plug to go check out that episode. Uh, but for today, could you just give us a quick flyby of how carve-out entities could be relevant in preparing their financial statements for an IPO? Sure, and I think Adam mentioned this already too, but a, a carve-out entity is when a parent company segregates or carves out a portion of its operation. So you think, you know, think here a segment, multiple segments, a subsidiary, even a line of business or multiple lines of business. Um, and the entity prepares a distinct set of financial statements for that carve-out business, which we call carve-out financial statements. Um, and those carve-out financials might be prepared in preparation for a sale, a spin-off, or an IPO. Um, so in that IPO scenario that we're talking about today, it's really critical that the carve-out financial statements reflect the assets and operations of the registrant or its predecessor so that those financial statements of the carve-out business include all costs of doing business. That's a common phrase or term you hear when you're preparing carve-out financial statements. Um, and you know, this is, this makes, this is a little, this is, pardon me, <laughs> this is complex to build out these carve-out financial statements in most cases because there's multiple legal entities with typically commingled operations to some extent that wouldn't have been historically reported separately. Yeah, there's a lot of judgment. I think if we think back to that podcast we had, you know, there's just a lot of like considerations you definitely have to think through, especially when you have a very complex card out structure. Um, so definitely something that you'll want to, you know, get some outside help in many cases because of the the undertaking there, and obviously have auditor buy in on a lot of those judgments and conclusions that are reached. And anytime we hear the word judgment, I just think you're going to have to write a lot of words down. <laughs> All right, so once we've determined the registrant and know whose financial statements we're preparing, how do we determine the time periods we're required to present for the annual financial statements? Yeah, so I'll take that one. So the, for um, the registration statement for your um, annual audited financial statements, a registrant's typically gonna present two years of a balance sheet and then three years for all your other um, financial statements. So you got income statement, equity, your cash flows. Uh, and then just one other thing to mention and kind of alluding back to our kickoff episode where we talked about issuer types, um, you know, there's a couple other issuer types that are afforded some benefits, um, particularly with the registration statement and the number of periods they have to present. So emerging growth companies, mm -hmm. EGCs, and then the smaller reporting companies, the SRCs. If you qualify as one of those types, um, you then are limited only having to present two years of a balance sheet, um, but then also just only two years of income statement, equity statements, and cash flows as well. So just some relief provided there, which is always welcomed. So that was annual. What about interim statements? When are they required and when are they not? Yeah, so I guess the, the big word here is it depends. Um, <laughs> so one thing to keep in mind as you're preparing your registration statement is that EGCs and non-EGCs do have the ability to omit um, you know, kind of interim financial statement periods from their draft registration statement that they'll submit. 
Um, if it's you know basically expected that those statements are not going to be required at the time of when that registration statement will become effective by the SEC. Um, if that's not the case, then generally you would already be including those interim financial statements in your draft registration statement. And so that's just one thing to kind of keep in mind is that the timing of when things happen really kind of drive the, the interim periods and whether or not those need to be included. Um, and you'll often hear this referred to as kind of the staleness of financial statements, which I think we talked a bit about on episode one. Maybe I'm drawing a blank there. <laughs> if we didn't, we will. <laughs> I think we're getting into it today, actually. <laughs> Sorry. We've slept since then. <laughs> and just one thing I wanted to add there is that um, typically when I see this kind of you're building out your plan for the, the IPO, It'll ultimately be where you're only really presenting annual financial statements in that first submission. And then you have a little bit of leeway there while you're waiting on the SEC comments to come back to actually build up your interim financials that you think are going to be needed at the time of effectiveness. So that's something just to keep in mind as you're building out the plan. But but also sometimes companies prefer to just present interim financial information that they know is going to be superseded by more updated interim information mm -hmm. in case they are publicly filing the information and they and they want to just allow that information out there to investors. So this all kind of sounds a little tricky to me. It sounds like there's a lot of nuance. So maybe, Adam, could you give a quick example of interim periods that may need to be presented? Maybe let's take like a Q3 interim filing. Yeah, so let's say we're gonna include, you know, our third quarter financial statements and the registration statements. So if that was the case, um, your balance sheet for your interim statements would present obviously the balances as of the end of Q3. So assume calendar year end here, so September 30th. Um, and they'll compare those against the most recent um, fiscal year end. So 1231 in this case of the prior year. Um, the income statement itself is actually gonna present kind of two periods. So you'll have a quarter to date period. So it'll be for the three months ended September 30th in addition to the year-to-date period, so the nine months ended, ending September 30th, and then obviously comparative um, financial statements for the prior year. Same with kind of the, the equity statement as well. You'll have a quarter-to-date change, so if you think about July 1 or end of Q2, so June 30th through September 30th, and then a year-to-date. A lot of times you'll see that equity statement also presented as kind of a continuous role. I see quarter by quarter role just added on. So there's a couple ways you can present that, whether you do it as two separate statements or kind of one continuous statement. Um, and then cash flows actually only have to be presented for year to date. So you'll just have a nine month cash flow and obviously similar prior year cash flows as well for nine months. Uh, and then just one other thing to mention is for one or one other issuer type that we touched on when we kicked off this mini series. So for foreign private issuers, you know, again, they don't have any periodic reporting requirements for interim financial information other than their annual report. But as it relates to their initial registration statement, um, there may be a need to include kind of a six month ended um, interim information in just that initial registration statement. Um, if the effectiveness of that registration statement were to kind of exceed nine months after their fiscal year end. So a little more leeway as far as like, you know, when they're gonna, their information will go stale and what they need to include in their registration statement. Um, but again, a little bit more limited. So another benefit of that issuer type. That's really helpful. And maybe just kind of driving in a little deeper, how does an entity determine what interim period they actually need to provide financial statements for, I guess, practically speaking? 
Uh, so Regulation SX actually provides kind of the guidance around financial statements, um, the requirements of financial statements, and you know whether or not additional financial um, information needs to be included. Really driven by the effectiveness of the registration statement itself, because there's this concept of when financial information could go stale, which basically means that the financial information that you currently have in the registration statement isn't current enough, so you need to refresh that with more current financial information, um, just based on the timing of when investors are going to, you know, be privy to the information in the registration statement. So there's actually some like strict parameters around this, specifically with like the dates of when things go stale. Um, so it's important to kind of keep these staleness dates in mind, and a lot of times companies will create kind of staleness calendars that they keep, you know, internally that just reminds everyone on the team kind of like what dates they're kind of working against or maybe for, depending on how you look at it. Mm -hmm. uh, but in general, the financial statements in an IPO filing cannot be more than 134 days old, um, which is basically viewed as the gap between the date of the filing or effectiveness and the date of the latest balance sheet. So that can't exceed 134 days. Um, one thing you have to keep in mind is that if you have third quarter financial information, um, included in your registration statement, that's going to be considered timely um, through the 45th day after the most recent fiscal year ends. So if you think about that, that takes you to February 14th if, or a calendar year end, that's 45 days. After which, if that was the case, you went beyond that you know, February 14th date, then that Q3 financial information that you had in that registration statement would be considered stale. And so what you would be expected to do is have to include then the next annual audited financial information in that registration statement. So definitely things you wanna keep in mind that you know as you're working towards you know specific timing of when you think effectiveness is gonna happen is just looking at, do we have the most current information and being ready to provide that? If not, so a lot of companies, you know, to Jana's point here, you know, when they're kind of preparing for the IPO, they're kind of already thinking about like when they expect effectiveness to be kind of um, provided by the SEC and making sure that they've got all the requisite information ready to go. So we made sure in our promise to talk about staleness. We did. <laughs> we, did we alluded to it. <laughs> and so this sounds like a bad thing. It's not like French toast, which tip for our listeners. That's the only time you want to use something stale. French toast is really good if you use stale bread. Um, but we don't want our financial statements to go stale because this is not French toast. So Correct. Could you provide an example to illustrate when those financial statements might go stale? Yeah. So kind of just keeping in line with our, you know, our Q3 example that we use for the statements themselves. So let's say we're doing, we're expecting to do a 2021 IPO registration statement filing, all that, all that jazz. And so the latest, you know, financial balance sheet date that we have in our registration statement is going to be Q3 of the prior year. So we've got 930 2020 financial information. If you know the SEC does not declare our registration statement effective by February 14th of the following year, so February 14th, 2021. Um, we're going to be expected to replace that interim um, financial information of Q3 with the annual audited financial information. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to include the 1231-2020 financial statements, full disclosures, everything like that, and also have that be subject to audit. So that occurs even if like the registration effectiveness comes in, you know, the next like February 15th, one day it misses it, you're, you know, there's no leeway with that rule. So you got to really kind of monitor that, you know, when things are going to go stale and just be prepared um, to update any financial statements that 
need to be updated. And I might just add on this point, because I think we talked about this a bit in the first episode, for smaller reporting companies, there are some additional accommodations afforded. And so this is one of those where Q3 numbers are good through March 31st, as opposed to that 45-day February 14th number. Speaking of audited financial statements, what are the requirements for a registrant's financial statements? Maybe include some interim financial information in there too, if you can. Yeah, absolutely. So most of this is probably common knowledge, but annual financial statements are, of course, required to be audited, whereas interim financial information is labeled unaudited. So that audit report for the annual financial statements, a couple of things here, it must be issued by a public accounting firm registered with the PCAOB. And secondly, that audit report needs to refer to PCAOB standards. So PCAOB auditing standards are much more stringent than AICPA auditing standards. And that those more stringent requirements result in lower materiality, which means more testing and less room for error, <laughs> and everybody loves that. <laughs> um, and so now, with respect to those interim financial statements being labeled unaudited, it's kind of a misnomer because they're actually required to be reviewed by the independent auditor, but it's under less stringent requirements than that audited information. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the audit review is conducted in accordance with PCAOB standards too. So one thing to note here is that if a company actually states that the interim financial statements have been reviewed, that report of the accountant on the review must be filed with those interim financial statements. So when we're thinking about the road to IPO and all the different facets that are required, auditor independence is one of the very first things that a company typically does. Um, They just want to make sure that they've engaged an audit firm that is, again, registered with the PCAOB and meets the independence rules of both the SEC and the PCAOB. So um, Regulation SX, we've mentioned several times here, also outlines the independence rules for auditors, but essentially it boils down to that phrase that we've all heard before, which is independence in both fact and appearance. Mm -hmm. So this applies to financial, employment, and other business relationships between the audit firm as a whole and the company. So really anything that might appear to represent a conflict of interest, even if it doesn't actually represent a conflict of interest, just that appearance could really breach independence. The PCAOB independence rules lay out scenarios in which an auditor would breach independence. So for example, if the audit fee is based on a contingency, a contingency of like a clean audit opinion, that would not be appropriate. <laughs> um, yeah. Providing tax services for individuals and those financial reporting oversight rules would also be a breach of independence. An additional thing companies should think about here are 3526 letters, and that's where PCAOB rule 3526 actually requires that before an auditor ever accepts that initial audit engagement, they need to communicate in writing to the audit committee any relationships that exist between the audit firm and the company. Um, And so with all this said, I mean, confirming independence can often take a lot longer than expected. So this is something that cannot be delayed on the path to IPO. I just did my um, Texas CPA ethics course last night. And so all that independence (laughs) is top of mind. All those rules and regulations. Just one thing I'd also just quickly add just around independence is that, you know, there's different guidelines with the SEC also for what qualifies as like an affiliate of the company when you're Mm -hmm. thinking about independence. And so, you know, you you definitely want to make sure that you have identified all true affiliates that will qualify as an affiliate under the SEC rules. And your auditors will be looking at this as well because they may you know, there could be chances where they also provided services to entities that maybe weren't an affiliate under kind of, you know, non-SEC affiliate kind of definitions. But now all of a sudden certain parties or entities all of a sudden become privy to that affiliate um, 
definition. And so some of those services may not be permissible. So, you know, that's another big exercise is just really looking at all the other services that, you know, potentially not necessarily your auditors themselves, but obviously the audit firm that you're engaged with, um, you know, may have provided services for with the, within the entity. Yeah. And another issue I hear about from time to time is around the need for other entity financial statements. Can you help explain some of those rules? Yeah, so I'll start by talking about significant business acquisition. So um, when a significant business acquisition acquisition is consummated or is probable of being consummated, the registrant may be required to file financial statements of the acquiree, and that's Rule 305. Um, You'll typically hear those financial statements referred to as Rule 305 financial statements. And existing registrants are subject to periodic reporting requirements for significant acquisitions, but before an IPO, a company isn't yet subject to those requirements, so management really has to be vigilant about evaluating its recent acquisitions to see if financial statements of the acquiree is required. So what should a registrant be looking at when they're considering their recent acquisitions to see if they might need to file any extra financial statements? Couple of things here. The registrant should be considering whether the acquisition constitutes an acquisition of a business and also when the business was acquired. So first, when we're thinking about whether the acquisition constitutes a business, um, the definition of business for SEC reporting purposes is actually different um, from the definition under ASC 805 for US GAAP purposes. (laughs) Yeah, sure, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And the focus there, really the differentiation is primarily on looking at the continuity of revenue producing activities. So that's where you're gonna have a business um, Mm. under SEC rule 305. Yeah, I'll say like broadly, like you could have more things that qualify as a business under rule 305 than you would under, you know, presumably under US GAAP. So some things that you may not designate as like a business combination under US GAAP could actually qualify as a significant business acquisition under SEC rules. So definitely something to just be aware of because they don't align. Yeah. And then just the other the other thing I mentioned, um, thinking about when the business was acquired. So if the acquiree's separate financial statements are um, included in the registrant's audited financial statements, then the acquiree's separate financial statements may not be required once you know once they're consolidated with the the audited financials of the registrant. Um, and that's that's based on certain significance test thresholds. Mm, significance. I hear judgment. <laughs> so I know these significance thresholds are all over the place sometimes. So for this specifically, how are those measured? So significance tests, um, there's three significance tests. There's an asset test, an investment test, and an income test. And the Rule 305 acquiree financial statements requirements are based on the highest of those three tests. So just, just laying that out quickly here, if that highest test does not exceed the 20% threshold, then you're good. No financial statements of the acquired business is required. Um, but if the highest test is you know, between 20% and 40% significance to the registrant, then the financial statements of the acquiree is required for the most recent fiscal year and the latest interim period. But um, one benefit here to mention is that comparative period interim information is no longer required hmm. if you're in that 20 to 40% significance thresholds. And that's that's um, kind of a rec- more recent development with some amended SEC rules back in, um, that were effective back in early 2021. Yeah, and that interim period is the, the latest interim period prior to the acquisition. So like 
you know, if you mm -hmm. had an acquisition in April, you would present your, your March interim period. And just for the last bucket there of the significance test thresholds, if the highest test exceeds 40%, then the financial statements that are required are two of the most recent fiscal years and the latest interim period, as well as the comparative interim period of the prior year. Um, and this, this is actually a benefit of those amended rules as well, that the number of required years is capped at two, whereas it used to be three years if there was even, I think, higher significance. All right, we like when there's fewer requirements. Yeah, the only thing I'd add here is like these these financial statements also are required to be audited. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a lot of times, depending on the acquisition, the company that was acquired, they may not even have had audits done historically or maybe limited audits mm -hmm. or something of that nature. So again, it's something that management also just has to keep in mind and prepare for. Um, one, maybe, sign of relief here is that these audits don't have to be conducted under PCAOB rules. So you can actually furnish financial statements um, related to these you know, significant acquisitions um, under AICPA auditing standards. So if they did have a prior audit report for, you know, you know, for these financial statements for any of these uh, significant acquisitions, then you, know, you may be able to leverage some of that past work done. And are there any other transaction types other than this acquisition of businesses that we may need to keep in mind? Yeah, there are. So the acquired significant businesses that we just talked about are usually the most common scenario registrants have to sort through, but there are some other um, rules and regulations to consider. Not to get too, too into all the, the rules here, but just to make sure the listeners are aware of some of these items. Um, rule 314 is gonna be the rule that addresses acquisitions of significant real estate operations. Rule 309 governs uh, financial statements of equity method investments. And then Rule 3, 310 governs financial statement requirements for guaranteed securities. And then just lastly, I'll touch on Rule 1302, and that governs requirements for affiliates whose securities collateralize other securities. Sounds like there's some good late night reading in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's switch gears now to the financial statements themselves. Once we know who we need to file financial statements for and how many periods, what are the actual form and content of those statements? Yeah, so I'll take this. Um, so kind of like what I mentioned, we kicked off the episode is that, you know, one of the biggest challenges um, about getting financials, um, you know, ready for the registration statement is that, you know, even if a company has historical financial statements that they prepare, they're generally not sufficient for the IPO. Mm. Um, and they'll typically require a lot of revision to the periods presented and make sure that they're reflecting one, like all the public entity um, accounting policies and principles under US GAAP, as well as all the kind of regulation SX disclosure requirements um, that are necessary um, per the SEC. Um, you know, so it's important that companies recognize is that, you know, there are a couple bases of US GAAP. There's US GAAP for PBEs, which is public business entities, and then there's US GAAP for non-PBEs, which is generally what most companies were, you know, previously following in any historical financial statements that they prepared. And then on top of that, like the SEC will layer in their own rules and interpretations on presenting certain things in the financial statements. So, you know, those qualify um, under Regulation SX. You know, one other thing to keep in mind, and we, and we touched on this lightly again, is that, you know, typically private companies' financial statements were again audited probably under AICPA standards. 
Um, but again, if you're going to be including financial statements and a registration statement, you know, they will have to be done in accordance with PCOB auditing standards. So, you know, at a minimum, your auditors are probably going to have to go back and perform a bunch of additional procedures um, that are incremental to what was required under the AICPA standards to kind of be able to issue um, a PCOB audit report. Um, so just, you know, another thing to kind of keep in mind, in addition to having to revise financials and update those, is that the auditors are going to come back in and have to do additional work. So the jump from a private company to a public company is pretty big. So what are some common areas that they may need to pay attention to that um, may differ from their previous reporting requirements? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And it's, you know, oftentimes, you know, what management is asking, like, well, what, what do we need to change? What do we need to focus on? And, you know, there'll, there'll be, there are certain things that are going to be applicable to, you know, nearly every registrant because there are just incremental requirements that you'll need to consider. But then there will also be things that will just kind of depend on the nature of, you know, the accounts or transactions that you may have transpired in the financial statements that you're including and whether or not you need to revisit some things there. Um, but some of the more common areas, so like, I know we've talked about this endlessly, I feel like segment reporting, <laughs> yeah. we don't have our segment um, specialist here, yeah. but that's, you know, that's only required of public companies. So you'd be expected to kind of go through the segment framework and include the segment reporting disclosures. Um, earnings per share is another big area that you're going to have to address um, as you, you know, kind of trans transition into kind of PBE US gap. Um, there's incremental disclosures around income taxes that will need to be included. Um, a real hot area for the SEC really has to do with um, this concept of temporary or mezzanine equity. Mm. So really looking at any kind of equity instruments or equity link type instruments um, for any possible like redemption type provisions that may warrant those need to be classified outside of permanent equity in this kind of temporary or mezzanine section of the balance sheet. Um, that's a, that's an area that often gets beat up quite a bit. Um, business combinations. So again, if you have acquisition activity, there's incremental disclosures that are required for business combinations. So some of them are like you know, pro forma type disclosures that need to be included in there. Um, related parties, you know, kind of different rules around related party transactions, what need to be disclosed and where. So keep that in mind. Uh, another kind of hot topic for private companies right now is you know they're all gearing up for the 842 adoption. You know, within 842, there are some um, expedients that are provided only to non-public entities. So kind of keep in mind if you elect any of these non-public kind of expedients or policy elections yeah. or of the like, not just within 842, but other areas of gap, um, you know, you'll be required to essentially unwind all those types of elections because they're not provided to kind of public business entities. So. Those are just some areas to think about. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a comprehensive list, but you know, some probably the more challenging or common um, ones that come up. And I do believe we have an entire episode dedicated to that topic. So if you want to search through the the archives, I expect you've already listened to it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did mention some new accounting standards and adopting those. So how do those new accounting standards impact the initial registrants? Yeah, so the transition provisions for adopting new accounting standards um, do differ typically between public business entities and mm -hmm. kind of non-public business entities, um, which generally results in there's an earlier effective date for public entities than non-public entities. So that is one thing you definitely want to keep in mind is that there may be 
a requirement for you to accelerate adoption of something that you weren't you know, anticipating. So always kind of looking out on what guidance has been issued and what's going to be coming down the pipeline for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, EGCs are provided um, another accommodation. So another benefit of it is that they can basically opt into electing kind of new accounting standard adoption in line with non PBE. So they don't have to follow the the accelerated adoption that you know PBEs are required to do. So that is a benefit for them. And just one other point I want to mention about kind of non-EGC private entities. So, you know, private entity that's planning to go public, they don't, you know, they're not going to qualify as an EGC. You know, let's say they've got too much revenue on the books, so they, they, don't, problem. <laughs> they don't make it. Um, you really want to kind of think about how your potential IPO may impact um, the adoption of new accounting standards. So, for example, if you have a non-EGC calendar year in private entity, that is going to elect to IPO after the adoption of a new accounting standard by using the required effective date for private entities. So to illustrate this better, um, <laughs> let's say a private entity is adopting ASC 842 you know, in, in 2022. That's mm-hmm. when everyone has to apply it. If they were to IPO at some point in 2023, so their you know annual financial statements let's say the most recent annual financial statement is going to be the 2022 financial statements and they're going to have three years presented um they're going to be required to retro actively oh, yeah. apply um asc 842 to all the periods presented because asc 842 was effective for public companies in 2019 and so all periods are going to have to reflect that so when you're thinking about your adoption and whether or not you qualify for certain things, you may want to, you know, think about: Do we actually need to apply this adoption to the earliest period versus doing kind of an effective date adoption? So, just a couple things to keep in mind. I know that's kind of hard to illustrate, you know, without visuals. I feel like, but um, yeah. you know, it, it's one thing that I think does trip some people up is realizing: Oh crap! Now I've got to push this even back further where we didn't evaluate it um, because of this kind of you know, nuance here. Yeah, really helpful to keep that on their radar just to even know that it exists. Um, And then I guess for a reporting entity who's updating their financial statements from private company to public company, is this reissuance considered a restatement of the original financial statements? Uh, Good question. Uh, The short answer is no. So, you know, adopting kind of, you know, PBE, US GAAP, or any of the incremental kind of like, you know, SX type disclosure items um, isn't considered like an accounting error or evaluation of an accounting error under ASC 250. Um, so you don't have to worry about like any of the the restatement, materiality considerations, mm-hmm. things of that nature. Um, one thing to keep in mind though, is that as you're going back and maybe making some of these changes, um, you know, your auditors may be coming back and doing incremental testing or procedures, testing at a lower materiality mm-hmm. level, if they identify errors that are truly errors in those financial statements, then yes, those errors themselves will be, you know, subject to the kind of ASC 250 correction of an error framework that that exists. So, um, you know, just kind of keep that on the back burner that, you know, there could be issues that didn't come up in historical audits because you know, AICP audit, a little less stringent, but as they kind of maybe dig into some areas of the financials that didn't get touched or touched more lightly, um, there is a chance that errors could come out. 
And Adam, just one thing I'll, I'll add to the point you have about restatements. So in my experience, just working on IPOs, the especially for EGCs, maybe smaller companies that have been growing quickly, um, maybe didn't have policies and processes and the accounting department as buttoned up in the past, it's not that uncommon to yeah. be aware of some um, errors in the past or maybe some things that need to be re-looked at and reevaluated. So I guess I just wanted to caution to the listeners, this is typically going to be need to be considered in some capacity um, in the in the process of uplifting the financial statements to the PCOB auditing standards. And if you are aware of a potential restatement matter, that's something you're going to want to communicate early and often with the auditors to make sure you're reaching a conclusion and consensus on those items early on so that they don't become like a long pull item that actually causes a delay in the IPO. Yeah, I would say it's better to restate your financial statements before you IPO versus like finding an error <laughs> in the next year that was included in your registration statement and then having to restate something there. So um, yeah, good point there. All right. And now that we've made all of our listeners sweat, but kind of comforted <laughs> them a little bit, hopefully, <laughs> I think that's a really good place for us to land the plane on this episode, which means we are more than halfway through our IPO mini series. Up next, we will go beyond the financial statements to talk through other registration matters. Um, and then we will round out our series with that, with after the IPO, what's next? So thank you, Adam and Jana, both for joining me today. And thank you listeners for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.